Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and today is episode 99. We're almost at 100. It's amazing. I can't believe we're almost there. Um, but today on the show, I chat with my friend Laura Parker about vagina problems, which is also the name of Laura's new book, which comes out next year. And I'm very excited about it because Laura is, I'm just in awe of Laura's uh, courage and bravery. And I know people use that term a lot, bravery, but I'm just going to say it because she's very vulnerable and open about her struggles, her pain, her experiences with endometriosis and vaginismus and vulvodynia. And we talk a lot about that and the resilience and struggles she's had with those diagnoses. But we also talk about explore, uh, like taking ownership of our bodies, masturbation as self-care, the gaslighting of women in pain, and so much more. Uh, this is a really essential conversation, uh, even if you don't have a vagina. And I, I would say that you should listen to this um, because you're a feely human, and Laura is doing uh, amazing work. She's a writer at BuzzFeed, and she's funny and smart, and uh, I'm just so grateful to know her and to know that she's sharing uh, about this stuff, and it's it's important because it impacts her mental health, it impacts your mental health if you're experiencing it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, before we get to the episode, though, I just wanted to... Uh, say that I love you and thank you for being here. And if you haven't left a review for Yumi Empathy in Apple Podcasts, please do that. It's a free and simple and fairly quick way to support the show. And I would be forever grateful. So thank you. Um, let's just do it. Let's get right to the episode with Laura Parker on Vagina Problems. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day -day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others 
to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm so grateful to gleefully cannonball into the empathy swimming pool with BuzzFeed writer, delightful shamer of gross dipshit men, and author of the upcoming book, Vagina Problems, with Laura Parker. Hello, Laura. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy was, to have you. That was such a good intro. <laughs> Thank you. I I had fun. I, I really do have a good time coming up with little intros for my guests, so I had fun with that. Yeah. No, it was good. I appreciate it. <laughs> good, good. Well, listeners, I'm here with Laura Parker, and she is an amazing writer, and we're new friends, and we're going to get to know each other today. But before we get into Laura's story, we're going to do a little emotional check-in, as we always do. How has your week been? How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling good. I am in the middle of writing the book that you just introduced. It is due in full August 1st, and up until this coming Friday, I've been working full-time while also trying to write it. So essentially, my weekends are just dedicated to writing, and a lot of the material can be hard for me to write sometimes emotionally because it deals with things in my life that have caused me a lot of pain, both physically and emotionally. And I can kind of just sit in my house with my dog and not get out much. Um, but today it's sunny. It's a beautiful day. I'm going to go on a walk after this and then get some brunch with friends. So I think, you know, I'm doing pretty good today. Yesterday was not a good day emotionally. Um, I watched all two seasons of Fleabag. Oh my gosh. Fleabag is it, fucking amazing. It was really good. But listen, it did not leave me in the best emotional space after watching it and already being low. Sure. Amazing show. Highly recommend. The priest kind of pissed at him right now. Uh-huh. Other I than that, that. Yeah. I was like, you can't just do that. But um, other than that, I'm doing, I'm doing well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard from, you know, I, I've written a lot about sort of like my, my struggles and pain and, and accessing that and tapping into that. It's, it's like my heart goes out to you. It's such a, it's such a brutal place to be, especially when we're trying to write it well and we're, you know, just be descriptive and be sort of true to the story. It's such a, such a vulnerable place. Totally. Yeah. Um, yes, it is. I like, I think this is a term that I did not come up with, but I call it like, you know, a writing hangover. The next day I can sometimes just feel like, God, what did I do the day before? Like sometimes my body hurts. Like what is going on? Um, it's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. You know, I had my friend, um, uh, gosh, um, why am I blanking on her name? Um, she's going to hate me for this shit. Uh, (laughs) her name's Laura. Um, that's why I was confused because your name's Laura and her name's Laura. Anyways, she was on way back in like episode nine, I think. And we talked a lot about, about, um, like, you know, how physical or how mental, sorry, reverse that physical struggles and pain impact our mental health. And I so relate to that. And this idea that, um, like when I'm in sort of like the throes of depression or something, it really like impacts my physical body. I start aching and stuff. And so when it comes to like the writing thing, like 
it makes it makes sense because we're kind of like accessing these core components and the emotions are kind of tied into these um, pockets of our life. We hold, you know, I'm blathering on, but like the simple of it is that we hold like these little traumas and pockets of pain and struggles in our physical body, uh, which is amazing. Slash hard. Slash awful. (laughs) Slash awful. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever read the book, The Body Keeps the Score? No, I have not. Should I? It's remarkable. And it's it's a book I mention on the show a lot. It's by this uh, Norwegian or German author named Bessel van der Kolk. And it's all about how we hold trauma in our bodies. It's really stunning. I sometimes get, I don't, I'm trying to think how to, to describe this. I sometimes get weird and almost like defensive when people talk about how emotional pain manifests as physical pain, even though I very much know that to be true and have experienced it myself. I think because I, for so many years, I was told that the very real physical pain that I was experiencing was all in my head that I sometimes get defensive and almost feel like people are telling me, well, you don't have this real disease that is causing you pain, causing you pain. You're just sad. Mm -hmm. Um, it's something that I think about a lot. Uh, I just want to preface by saying I do actually believe that there is a large connection between emotional pain and physical pain, but my physical pain is not because I'm sad. It's because I have a disease and it's made worse by the fact that that makes me sad, if that makes sense. It it totally makes sense. And I think that's an important disclaimer because, you know, and let's kind of just jump into it. Like you, you know, you've written about and have talked about this idea where, you know, doctors basically saying that the pain was all inside your head. And that's, that's truly invalidating. Like that, that is someone who we're supposed to kind of trust and rely on doctors, you know, these people in high esteem and in high positions in society telling you that you're wrong. Like that's a shitty thing. Yeah. Like it's how, did, very, how did that feel? Tell me about that. It's like, almost unbelievable. Like at certain points, it was like, I wasn't even in the room and I was just kind of looking down at what was happening. And like, this can't possibly be real life. Like this has to be some sort of weird other dimension that's happening because it's like, on one hand, I know that my pain is real because I fucking feel it every day. But on the other hand, when you don't have a reason for it, and like you said, the people that we're supposed to trust, the doctors, the experts, when they're repeatedly telling you that nothing is going on, I mean, you start to doubt yourself, like to the point where I felt like I didn't know who I was. Like I was worried that I was honestly losing my mind. And at certain points I genuinely wondered if I should be in some sort of mental institution, Mm. if there was something wrong with me, like if I was just imagining this all. But then when I would feel the pain, I was like, I can't possibly be imagining this. So then I kind of, turned it around and was like, okay, well maybe everyone is just experiencing pain like this. Maybe I'm just weak. Maybe I can't handle it. Like it just turned into this awful spiral that honestly to this day is really hard to not do. Like it's something that it's probably been the biggest obstacle for me um, is being my own advocate and not telling myself that I'm making it up or being weak or just, you know, should just deal with it better. Um, Because it turns out that not everyone is experiencing this pain 
and everyone's pain is different. And the way that I handle it doesn't mean that I'm weak or doing something wrong. It's just, it's very weird. And I think about it a lot. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. It's like, how do you, you can't show people the pain. I have an invisible illness, right? right so unless right. they cut me open and look inside, they're not going to know that anything's going on on the outside. I look perfectly fine. So any Joe Schmo walking down the street that looks at me is going to be like, yeah, she's fine. Yeah. But on the inside, I felt like I was unraveling. Yeah. It, I mean, there's so much there. I, like I, I just, you know, my heart breaks for that. Cause it's like one of the things I talk a lot about on this podcast is the, like the, crucialness and like just the importance of meeting people where they are and truly seeing them and not like when did we get to a point in society where we don't believe people right like we we need to accept truths you know we need to accept the fact that like this person is telling the truth and and speaking from their heart like clearly but we have this um almost like this this veil of cynicism about how we interact with other humans that just kind of bums me out, you know? Totally. It's always really confused me because it's like, why would I lie about this? Like when I right, have to... Right, to what end? Yeah. When I have to miss friends' birthday parties or miss my own fucking birthday party and I'm just sitting on my couch because I'm in pain, like, what do I gain from that? Do you think I want to be alone in my house while right. all of my friends are out hanging out? It's very weird. Sometimes, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, I write a lot about it. My book is about it. It's kind of just like a big part of my life now, um, for better or worse. And a lot of times I wonder if, you know, maybe that's people's fear coming out. I get a lot of cynicism. People constantly doubting me or telling me that if I just drink celery juice every morning or like saw this one doctor, like used these essential oils, then I probably wouldn't be in pain. And a lot of times I think I've convinced myself that some of this reasoning is because it scares them to Mm. think of something that is incurable and causing people pain every day because they try to imagine themselves in that situation Mm. and it's too hard to imagine. So they come up with a solution. And even though it's not a real solution, it makes them feel better, even though it's actually not about them. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. I think that I think you're spot on. And I think we're such a solution oriented society. And we want I mean, regardless of something like your condition where, you know, there isn't a cure. And there aren't these easy solutions where you just have to like, oh, you just need to do self care better. Like mm-hmm. we, we, I think as a society, society, in addition to being kind of maybe cynical, we, we want to just have answers, clear answers, uh, check a box and move on. Yep. Yeah. But sometimes there aren't. I mean, no. I wanted that too. When I first started going to the doctor, to be honest, I very much thought like, okay, they're going to like give me some sort of pill, some sort of medication. Um, I'm going to have to have some sort of surgery and then I'm going to be fine. And I did not ever have the idea or ever have the thought that this was something that maybe didn't have a solution because that is very hard to think about. It's so hard. Yeah. It's scary. I get it. Obviously. I mean, I'm living with it, but it's like other people project their fears onto you and then, it comes off as like disbelief really. And then it's like, it's this whole thing. It spirals. It's like, just makes it worse for the person who 
is trying to open up. And like you said, just meet them there. I'm not looking for a solution. I don't need Nancy from Facebook to cure me, you know, like that's not what I'm looking for. I'm just talking about my life. I know. Come on, Nancy. (laughs) God. (laughs) No. And like, uh, I I'm so sorry, Laura. Like it's such, you know, I can see how, you know, being met with cynicism, cynicism, being met with these kind of like, I need to provide a solution things being met with like, skepticism you know how can how that can be such an isolating feeling and i'm i'm sorry about that i'm sorry you've had to deal with i appreciate that i think it's also just makes me personally feel like people think that i just sit around all day and whine about being in pain like i'm not actively trying to feel better every Mm. second of my life um you know i'm not just and even if i was just sitting around and being sad about it like that's okay. I'm allowed to do that, but I'm also trying very hard. The number of things that I have tried to cure myself of these incurable things is like, I can't even, where do I even begin? There's hundreds, you know? Um, so it's almost like offensive to me when people are like, okay, well, why don't you just drink celery juice? It's like, well, do you really think that I didn't think to try something? No, I'm just sitting here being like, I'm in pain. That sucks. guess I'll just be sad. Yeah. Well, and I think that comes from ignorance. It comes from a lack of education. It comes from fear, as you said. It comes from a lot of things, I think. And it's really why I wanted you on the show is because I think your story is a really, truly important one. And, and these chronic disorders and illnesses are so important to talk about uh, to, I mean, uh, at the very simplest level, educate. Totally. I agree. So... Can you tell me uh, when when this all kind of started? Yes. So it's actually, it's kind of interesting. When I was thinking about coming on this podcast, I was thinking a lot about this journey that I've been on. And it started when I was around 14, basically when I first got my period. My period was always incredibly painful. But when I was 15 years old, my best friend in the world died in a tragic accident. Um, so I was in high school. Um, she was in an ATV accident and then was in a coma for 34 days before eventually losing her life. And my pain kind of coincided with that. Like I had been in pain, but after that is when it really started to accelerate. And I do think that the stress of that situation and the emotion that I was feeling kind of caused an earlier onset. And I say that knowing that I do have a very real disease, it has been diagnosed, but that I also know that I was 15 years old and went through something tragic. And I think that the two of them combined turned into just hell. Um, and yeah, Yeah, so that's, that's two huge traumas. Uh, at once it was complicated because it was like I had something physically going on but I also had this emotional trauma going on and so I would actually you know I went to this urgent care one time I was at basketball practice we played basketball together my friend Emily and I um and you know she had passed away and I tried to continue doing it because you know everyone was like oh it's honoring her or whatever and at one at a practice one day, 
um, when I was running, I was overcome with this horrible abdominal pain, which now I know is endometriosis. At the time, I had no clue. It kind of just happened on and off. Running, for some reason, is a trigger for me. It's a common symptom of endometriosis that you can't run. I have mm. no idea why I'm not a doctor. Um, but it, it's weird. Yeah. I would always pass out and like throw up. Wow. And I was like very active in high school. Like Emily and I played all these sports together. So anyway, I practiced one day, um, a few months after she had passed away, maybe like six, seven months, I passed out and my mom came and she was like, we need to go to the ER. Cause my coach had called her and I was like, I don't want to go to the ER. I grew up in a very small town. So there really wasn't a good hospital like close by. It's like an hour away. So we ended up going to urgent care and I was explaining to the doctor there. Actually, I think it was like a nurse practitioner what was going on. And I had my letterman jacket next to me and it had a button on it that was like in memory of Emily. Hmm. And as I was talking, she like interrupted me and was like, what is that pointing at the button? And I was like, Oh, that's in memory of my friend that passed away a few months ago. And she was like, were you close to this person? And I was like, yeah, we were very good friends. She stopped me and was like, okay, well, I think I know what's going on here. I was so confused. I was like, okay, how did she like figure out what was wrong with me already? I don't understand what the button has to do. And she was like, looked at my mom, didn't look at me. She was like, your daughter's just sad. Uh, and I was like, wait, what? And then she kind of just kept going and was like, clearly she suffered a loss. She's crying out for attention. Maybe consider putting her in therapy of some sort. And that was it. Like she left the room after that. And I was just so taken aback because in my mind, even though I was only 15 at the time, I knew the difference between what I was feeling in my stomach and what I was feeling in my heart. And they were not the same. Like I knew that something was going on in my body that was not related to the death of my friend. But because I had lost this person. It was a small town. Everyone knew that this person had died. It was like, you know, this great tragedy. Everyone just kept writing it off as like, you're just sad. Mm. And it was really hard because I was young and I didn't know. Like eventually I was like, okay, maybe I am just sad. Like, I don't know. Sure. I'm confused. So it was just like a weird train of events that kind of prohibited me from figuring out what was going on. Also the fact that doctors just, choose not to believe that this very common thing happens in young women. Um, Yeah, it was weird. So, I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, that's horrendous. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And and second of all, like, hmm, big leap, uh, nurse practitioner. Like, that's that seems very unprofessional. (laughs) So unprofessional. I wish that I could go back in time now, but listen, I was 15. Even my mom, like I know she wishes she could go back in time now too, but both of us were just so taken aback. I don't think, I mean, we were in shock. Like I thought it was a joke. Like I thought she was going to be like, okay, well just kidding. I'm going to run a test now. So did you start at that point going to therapy? I had been in therapy actually. My parents, um, a couple months after Emily had passed, enrolled me in therapy. But like I said, we grew up in a pretty small town, very conservative. And mm. most of the therapists were religion based. Oh, yeah. um, I'm not a religious person, to be honest. Normal. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was difficult for me, which is a whole other thing. But I've realized in therapy since then, that a lot of my 
medical experience kind of mirrored the experience I had while I was grieving, where I was kind of crying out and telling these people how sad I was that my friend had died. And they were saying, she's in a better place. What are you upset about? Mm. Your feelings are invalid. And then years later, I would go to doctors and say, crying out, I'm in pain, something's wrong. They would say, you're imagining it. It's in your head. What are you upset about? And they kind of mirrored each other. Yeah. And to the point where I kind of doubt myself, like I was talking about earlier, where I'm like, am I in pain? Am I just being dramatic? God, the, I mean, the negative impact of invalidation is so large. Like there, you know, these experiences are hugely invalidating for you. And no wonder you're, you started to think like, am I crazy? Am I making this up? Am I, what's going on? Am I not seeing the same truth as these people? Like, God. Totally. I mean, that's, that's brutal. It's something that I try, I'm actually writing about this in my book, doing my best, it's writing about like what it is about people just saying things like that, like those those terms that are just so standard for when something happens like oh they're in a better place okay well I'm so fucking sad about it like I don't care where you think they are I could still be sad about the fact that my friend died in a tragic way and like the people's urge to say oh oh, well at least you don't have this or like it it could be worse you don't have cancer whatever when I talk about the pain that I'm experiencing, like that doesn't make me feel better. No, you know? they're not, they're not seeing you for where you're at at all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think about that a lot. I actually had a pretty intense episode uh, of this podcast, episode 74, where I kind of relayed an experience I had with my mother that was deeply invalidating, um, essentially just kind of invalidating all of my childhood trauma and pain and, and her essentially just telling me at the end, like, prove to me that you have cutting scars, prove it. I don't believe you. And, and that level of validation and we, and you're experiencing it too and have experienced it. It's so, it's just so mind fucky. Cause like you're, you're, we're supposed to be seen by the people we love and our friends and, and, really all the people we're supposed to be seen like that's what human connection is all about and then when we're met with this thing where we feel like oh they're they're living in a different reality and i think you know to try to like maybe unpack unpack a bit like what you know you you trying to get to that question and understand like the answer to it is like i think pe- people are scared as you said people are scared People don't have the proper education. People um, want to believe that life is simple and, and can we can just move on and ignore our feelings and ignore our pain. But, you know, time and time again, uh, science has proven that like sitting in our pain and knowing it and looking at it and feeling it and relaying that to others is what truly can, can serve us and help us in the end. Yes, absolutely. I think also growing up where I was, like I talked on the religion thing, like it's just to them, there is an answer and it's just like God's will. And it was kind of just constantly reinforced to me about Emily that like God, this was in God's plan. And it was really hard for me to understand that at 15 because she was 
such a wonderful person. And I'm like, you're telling me that this God who's supposed to be so great took this innocent person and killed her in such a tragic way. That doesn't make sense to me. Make it make sense. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I struggle with that too. And I, I've gotten a lot of that through the years. It's yeah. How can, you know, I mean, we don't have to get into the religion cause I have a lot of, <laughs> have a lot of things to say, but like I was raised no, in a like, conservative yeah. Christian household too. And have since gone away from it. And I, I think religion can be a beautiful thing, but, but when it's served as a tool to invalidate um, and totally. be exclusionary, like then I, then I don't appreciate it. I agree. Yeah. yeah I full stop agree on all <laughs> counts. So you, at the age of 15, you know, lose your friend, you start having this, uh, pain in your abdomen, which, you know, uh, eventually gets diagnosed as endometriosis. Like what, tell me about like the next sort of period of time before you finally get diagnosed. It was a lot of questioning myself. Um, in high school, I did have the pain, but once it got, to, once I got to college, it kind of transformed itself. Like I had a lot of dietary issues, a lot of digestion issues. My stomach was constantly swollen. I would go days without eating and I would still feel so full. And I just could not figure out what was going on. I assumed that it was some sort of stomach issue. And um, is that a symptom of endometriosis? Yes. It is okay. commonly misdiagnosed as IBS because you can have endometriosis on your bowel and on your intestines. And, um, you know, it can cause issues like that mirror IBS, but I was constantly being told, Oh, you have IBS or like change your diet or like keep a food diary. At one point I went to a gastroenterologist when I was like, I think 19 and he was telling me, Oh, you're in college, just like drink less. And I wasn't drinking, um, not for lack of trying. I wanted to feel like a normal college kid and do that stuff. But I was just caught my stomach hurt all of the time and I just couldn't figure it out. So I had these weird stomach symptoms that felt like, okay, something's going on in my stomach coupled with this pain. Every time I had a period that was so intense, like I would pass out, I would throw up, I would lose consciousness. It was just a lot coupled with this intense abdominal pain when I would run. So those three things did not make sense to me in my head as being related. Right. Now that I know what endometriosis is and the symptoms, to me, it's like, how the fuck did someone not figure this out? It's very obvious. But to me, at, you know, 18, 19, I had no clue. Um, I, had, I couldn't figure it out, so I kept going to all of these doctors. And then one day, I was running on the treadmill, which was a mistake. But here's the thing. It doesn't happen every time I run. It's very confusing. It, it, it only happens like every once in a while mm. and it'll just hit me out of nowhere like a fucking truck. And so I was running one day in the student union on a treadmill and the pain started and I immediately knew what was coming because I had experienced it so many times before. And I was like, holy shit, I have to get myself to a bathroom. Like I'm going to throw up. So I immediately like pressed the emergency stop on the treadmill and like crawled to the nearest bathroom. I threw up and then it was like explosion. It's, it's hard to explain. Like this is something I've struggled with when writing about this because it's like your body has a way of forgetting painful things, you sure. know? Yeah. Um, so I can 
talk about this pain. And I can tell you that, you know, I tried to hit my head on the toilet to knock myself out so that I wouldn't have to feel it anymore that I thought I was going to die. But it's like, it doesn't do the pain justice. Like it's, it's mind boggling. And I was just screaming and crying and I began hyperventilating and I was like, I had the like gener the first generation iPhone at the time. Um, so it had the touch screen and I just remember trying to get my fingers unclenched to unlock my phone and just like dial whoever I could dial because I was just screaming and my hands were so clenched. I eventually got it open and the first person in my contact list, like on my most recent calls was this girl named Jen, who I had done a class project with. So we had just met recently and I called her. I honestly have no clue what I said. I don't even know if words came out. She somehow figured out where I was and came and called 911. I went to the ER. My dad met me there um, at the emergency room in Indianapolis, which is where I was in school at the time. By the time that I got into the room and was seen by the doctor, I mean, my pain had lessened quite a bit. It had been hours at that point. And also they had chalked me full of lots of drugs with Mm. an IV. And the doctor spent about five minutes with me and told me, oh, you're, you know, he told my dad, because they never directly addressed me for some reason, told my dad, oh, she had period cramps and told me to take ibuprofen next time. Ibuprofen, like. And you were explaining to this doctor that you felt like you were going to die? Yes. I literally arrived to the hospital in an ambulance. Wow. You know, and that was kind of the turning point to where I really, really started to question what the hell was going on. Um, And after that, I started to Google pain when running, extreme pain when running, because that was like something that was so confusing to me and I couldn't figure it out. And I saw the word endometriosis and I was like, what? What is this? And then I looked at the list of symptoms of which I had every single one. And that was when I started to try and find my diagnosis myself. And then what point, well, first of all, like I'm fucking angry because it feels like, it feels like there's this um, reluctance to say endometriosis or something, a reluctance to like diagnose it even. And it, yeah. it, it almost feels and uh, it, it almost feels a little bit and maybe this is a bit inflammatory, but it feels like sexism. It feels like. Oh, no, it's not right? inflammatory. A hundred percent true. So um, explain to me, like, or help, have you unwrapped that a little bit? Because like, it, it feels like, so like, what, is, why can't they diagnose this? Like, why can't they get to that point? I mean, here's the thing it's difficult to diagnose endometriosis like medically speaking, because the only true way to diagnosis diagnose it at the moment is through a surgery. Um, so I think they try to, you know, give other answers because, you know, no one really wants to have like a surgery if they don't have to. But the problem is that they act like endometriosis is not a common thing when it actually is like around 200 million people worldwide have it. And those are just the ones that have been diagnosed. So I actually Mm. think it's probably a lot higher than that. Yeah. There's also this issue that like women who, you know, primarily have endometriosis 
like obviously women, but like people who identify other, other ways have endometriosis too. But, um, it's a female organ issue. They just think that we're dramatic. I don't understand it. It's like, I've tried to, but I mostly just end up angry because it's, I know for a fact that if a man went to the ER, ended up there after riding in an ambulance from this horrible abdominal pain, they would run some fucking tests. Yeah. They would do something. They wouldn't be like, oh, take some ibuprofen, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think there's also this other layer to it that there is no cure to endometriosis. So there's really not much your average doctor can do. And I think that that frustrates them because I think a lot of doctors have an ego problem, to be honest, mm. and don't like not having the answers because sure. they see things very black and white and an incurable illness like endometriosis is not black and white. Yeah. Um, they want to win. Yes. And they can't. Yeah. And so that frustrates them. So instead, they kind of project that frustration onto the patient. That's what I think. So unfair. It is very unfair. I, in my book that comes out next year, I have like a chapter dedicated to like a letter to the doctors who didn't believe me because the impact that that has had on my life is astounding. Yeah. And I think about, the years and the months and the minutes that I spent in bed wondering if I was crazy, I can't get that time back, you know? No. And yeah. it's simply because they refused to listen to me. Oh, it's not yeah. like, you know, it's not like this crazy disease that no one has ever heard of. Right. It's actually really common. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, I, I it sounds like your book is going to be amazing and I, I really can't wait to, can't wait to read it. Thank you. Um, so you have this experience, you know, in, uh, in college, you go to the ER. At what point are you actually diagnosed? So after the ER, I start Googling and I see the word endometriosis and then I make an appointment with this gynecologist that came highly recommended. I actually knew him. Um, he was a family friend, which makes it all the worse, um, you <laughs> yeah. know, and yeah. I trusted him because he was very well known in the community and had a lot of positive reviews. And, um, I went to him and basically was like, I think I have endometriosis and he validated me actually. So it started out, he was like, I think you do too. You have all of the symptoms. He was like, you just need to get the surgery and it will fix you basically. I didn't know any better at the time. Now I know that there are two surgeries that you can get for endometriosis. Mm. One of them is called ablation where they just burn it off. So they're actually not removing the endometriosis. They're just burning off the top layer. And in many cases, it's actually ineffective. And then there's excision, which is much more complicated, very hard to find doctors that do it. There are very few. I know all of them by name in the U.S. That's how few there are. Um, that's called excision. They actually excise the endometriosis. They cut it out. So he did ablation surgery on me. Uh, like I said, at the time I had no idea. Most people don't, this is not common knowledge. 
Um, it's something that you really have to find the answers to yourself. So when you're going to your doctor and they say, okay, yeah, you have endometriosis. This is the surgery you need. Of course you're going to get it. Why wouldn't you? You're suffering. You're in pain every day. This is a solution someone's offering you. Yeah. I got the surgery. I was diagnosed with endometriosis, probable adenomyosis, all of these things. I was so validated. I was like, yes, something was wrong with me. Like it was almost it's weird. It's a weird feeling to want to be diagnosed with something, right? Because you just want an answer you for your an pain you so want badly. A name for it. Yes. Um, and so I got it, and then I thought, okay, I'm better. Great. I left to study abroad in Australia two weeks after my surgery, and that's when everything started to fall apart um, because my pain actually did not improve. It got ten times worse to the point where. I was almost bedridden um, during this time when I was supposed to be, you know, having the best time of my life, studying abroad, meeting all of these people. And I would constantly email my doctor and describe my symptoms because the time difference was like 17 hours, you know, and I couldn't just like call him up um, from a foreign country. So I was constantly emailing him and his response was always very dismissive, which was confusing to me because he had been so great prior to that. So he was like, change your diet. Um, cause I was still having all the digestive issues, but like so much worse. And I was also having really bad vaginal pain and like just everything was awful. And it stayed like that for the four or five months that I was in Australia. I went to see him as soon as I got back and he basically accused me of having an STD because I was in Australia and he thought that I was just what? sleeping around with all of these men. Um, so he said, okay, well, I'm going to check you for STDs because I think that's what's going on and told me that the endometriosis was no longer the problem because he had removed it, which is actually not true. Um, now I know that, but I mean, it was bad. And that went on for several months where I would go to him pleading for answers because I was so miserable. It got to the point where I was hardly leaving bed. Mm. He put me on antidepressants because he said that I seemed very stressed and that it was an emotional issue. Um, and it would just kind of kept going from there until I got up the courage one day to go to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, because it's supposed to be, I don't know if you know anything about Mayo Clinic, but it's like world renowned in the Midwest for being yeah. in the place that, you know, you go when no one else can help you. Right. And I just couldn't figure it out. I mean, my vagina was hurting like crazy. Everything was just shit had hit the fan. And I was so depressed, like not leaving bed. And I was graduating college at the time. And I was like, how am I going to work? What am I going to do? Like everything is awful. And so when I called this doctor to request my files to be sent to Mayo Clinic, they told me no, because I was just being dramatic. And that is when everything like truly fell apart with this doctor. Um, and I have not spoken to him since that. Uh, he retired soon after this all went down, which I'm very happy about because I can only imagine what would have happened if he had continued practicing the way that he was practicing. And, you know, when I went to Mayo Clinic, they diagnosed me with vaginismus and like all of these pelvic floor issues and explained what endometriosis can do to the body and how it's not just something that you can easily go in and burn off. Like it's just much more layered than that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
but basically they just validated me and were like, yeah, yeah, there's definitely a reason for your pain. And he was very much just like, take antidepressants. Mm. You're dramatic. Um, so yeah, I just kind of rambled for like a while. But. I loved it. And I, how did it feel to finally be validated like that? That must have felt, I mean, obviously you're in so much pain and you're, 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 you know, they're telling you that, yeah, you're, you're having this pain and it's real and you also have vaginismus, like all these things. But tell me about the feeling of like, God damn it, I'm finally being seen. It's interesting because I actually didn't feel that way because mm. they kind of presented it. The doctors at Mayo gave me what I needed, which was a diagnosis, right? But they yeah. were very cold. Um, their bedside manner left a lot to be desired. So it was basically like you have these things. There is currently no cure. You can go see a physical therapist, but uh, it is what it is. So it actually was one of the darkest moments in my life getting those diagnoses because I think up until that point, I still had this idea of the Western medicine situation where you go, the doctor figures out what is wrong with you and gives you a solution. Yeah. And that is not what I was given. Um, I was given more words, more diagnoses and little to no solution. And so I don't, I don't, remember feeling validated at all actually like i was and i was glad to know that the asshole doctor who kept telling me that it was all in my head and that i was just sad was wrong but on the other hand i didn't have anything that i could do about it so it was like holy shit this is my life now like it was i i just felt like i was drowning and i didn't know what I mean, I was 20, 21 at the time. I was like, this is it. Like my life feels like it's over if mm. this is what it's going to be like, you know? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that is a lot to take in considering being so young and, and yeah, looking forward saying like, oh, this is, this is my life. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine, um, you know, having, having to deal with that, you know, so now you're at a place in your life. How old are you? I'm 28. 28. You know, you're seven years past your diagnosis, but you're still dealing with all these issues. You obviously still have endometriosis. You still have vaginismus. Like what, first of all, can you tell me, I, I, I've, I've done some research and I know a bit about it, but can you tell me for, and for the listeners, like what is vaginismus? Yes. So, I mean, I don't have like the medical definition by any means, but it's basically like my pelvic floor muscles um, are in pain a lot. So I have trouble with insertion for many, many years. I could not insert tampons mm. or anything of the sort um, because it just feels like, I mean, there's, it just doesn't work. And I also have like vaginal burning and just sensitivity. So if I wear the wrong type of jeans or I wear a thong or something that irritates my vagina, I will, it will cause a flare, mm. which is like just pain in that region. Um, yeah. It's weird, but it's like, it's a very common, it's more common than you think. But what I write about a lot is that I actually cannot have penetrative sex and I'm a straight woman. So yeah. I'm attracted to men. Um, and that's been one of the hardest parts of this for me, um, which is a whole other thing that's like, 
you know, obviously that's how most people think of sex. Right. And it was how I thought of sex for a really long time. So I always thought of myself as someone who couldn't have sex. And then you add in the pain on top of that, like this daily chronic pain that I'm dealing with and like all of these other things. And it's just like, my God, talk about feeling unlovable or like feeling mm. undesirable. Um, so vaginismus is just vaginal muscle pain and in interior. But I also had something called vulvodynia, which is like the exterior, the vulva. Um, so, you know, the, the way that I got diagnosed with vulvodynia, just to like give some sort of visuals, not a visual, <laughs> that's a weird <laughs> word for that. But like they take a Q-tip and touch your vulva and it hurts so much just lightly being touched with a Q-tip that I screamed out in pain. Wow. That is how sensitive it was. Yeah. I have since made a lot of progress with that. Like I can wear a thong if I feel like playing with fire. Um, I can wear tampons now. I can insert dilators, which are these tools used to like expand your muscles, but I still cannot have penetrative sex. Mm. Not for lack of trying though. Mm-hmm. How has that been with partners? How, like, do you, are you sort of out in the open kind of trying to like, this is what I'm experiencing. This is, this is what I have. And how has that been met with? It's only been in the last couple of years that I've really started to own it and just be like, this is what's going on. You're either cool with it or you're not. I think mm -hmm. prior to that, it was very, very, very hard for me to even get myself to a point where I was dating. And then if I even made it to a situation where I was in an intimate situation with a man, it was a lot of just shame, embarrassment and apologies. Mm. And, you know, uh, when I first started dating and I had these issues, I was 22, 23, like, Men at 22 and 23 aren't exactly, you know, the best sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was an issue. Like, yeah. I was met with a lot of annoyance and a lot of ghosting. And yeah, I internalized that. But now, I very much believe that sex is so much more than a penis and a vagina. And can you hear that? Yeah. Wait, what? Is there something in the background? Oh, okay, good. I just wanted to make sure. My um, a text just came through on my computer, which I didn't even know was a thing that oh, I had no, set up. Oh, I, no, I did not hear it. Okay, good. I'm just going to keep talking. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Um, I heard the but, penis and vagina thing. Okay, so yeah, sex is much more than just a penis and a vagina. And I very much just own it these days. And like, if someone can't figure out how to be intimate with me in another way, then... I just don't have time for that. I just don't spend time with them. Like that's boring to me. And yeah. it's, it very much says more about them than it does about me, I think. But, Absolutely. you know, it's easy for me to say that now, but five years ago, even two years ago, the thought of being intimate with someone and looking at them and being like, Hey, by the way, I don't do penetration. So let's do something else and not crying or feeling shame or embarrassment. I mean, I never thought that I would get to this point, but here I am. So I'm happy you are at that point because that's that's it. I mean, what a first of all, like what a beautiful ownership of your body and who you are. Like that is that is amazing. I think, and um, 
you know, it is, I think it is important as a society in general to look at sex in, in different ways and to look at intimacy and love in different ways. Like, it's not just about, you know, penis, vagina, you know, it's just like, that's no, how we've yeah. always seen it, right? It's important to consider all of it. Right. Totally. I mean, people are intimate in so many different ways, like whether you have a sexual preference or like whatever, people yeah. just can't do certain things. That doesn't mean that they're not having sex. Like my therapist really just one day we had this moment where I feel like I really changed. I was talking to her and I was like, I just can't have sex. And she was like, stop. What do you mean you can't have sex? And I was like, you know what? I, like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like we've been working together for four years, ma'am. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And she was like, Laura, you can have sex. You just can't have penetration. Do you think that that's all that sex is? She straight up asked me, she was like, do you think that gay people do not have sex? And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, you're right. That's actually really shitty of me to say that because then I'm saying that sex is just penetration or penis and a vagina. And that's yeah. doing a disservice to so many people, including myself. And yeah. after that, I stopped. It was like all about changing the wording. And I was like, no, I can have sex. I just don't do penetration. I love that. That's such a beautiful reframe and, and very inc and very inclusive, you know, as you said. Yes. Yeah. What, like, so, um, one of the things I, I really love about your presence online is, like, you, you, you're owning this now. And, like, I think that's so important. And one of the aspects of that is, you know, is talking about, like, masturbation as self-care. And totally. I, which I think is so important. Can you tell tell me a little bit about that sort of ownership part of your kind of image? Yes. So I think um, it was it was really hard for me for a long time to be in touch with my vagina. It was like this part of my body that had caused me so much pain, so much shame, so much confusion, so much embarrassment that I just was so out of touch that even the thought of sex in any way made me so uncomfortable. Like I could not watch game of Thrones because of the sex scenes. Mm. I couldn't talk to my friends about their dating lives. Like everything about it just made me feel like a fucking failure. Um, um, like there was just this so much wrong with me. And I started doing physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy. And I started trying to do that work and using dilators and then, one day I just decided to buy a vibrator and I was like, you know, it was like this idea of like, if you don't love yourself, who else will? And I kept thinking about that. And I was like, if I can't make myself come, how am I going to be intimate with someone else? Mm -hmm. Because by that point, like, you know, people had told me like, you can still be intimate in other ways, but like, you know, it's easy to say that to someone when you're not the one icing your vagina every night. Right. So I right. decided to like, kind of, just try it out. And I started, you know, the thing is like, I don't just have pain with insertion or like pain when I wear a thong. Like I actually experience a shooting pain pretty much every time I orgasm, it's gotten better over the years, but it's still very much there. Like mm. present day, if I was to orgasm right now, it would hurt in some way. Wow. And so that's something, yeah, it's not great. I always feel like I'm being punished. I'm like, cool. Um, but I still do it cause I, you know, it's worth it. But, uh, so it was something that I just wanted to get my body used to. And it was something that a physical therapist once kind of suggested to me. And I think it's very important for people with vagina problems to 
masturbate and to get to know themselves and to reacquaint their body with the idea of pleasure and not pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very hard to do that with someone else if you're not very far along in this journey, if you're like still very much in pain, like why would you want to include someone else? It's, it's embarrassing. And it's something that you maybe don't want other people around. So I just did it in the comfort of my bedroom with myself, because if I cried or screamed out in pain or felt really dumb, like no one else was there to witness it except for myself. And that was okay. You know? So I just started masturbating. And at first it was fucking terrible because I was like, this sucks. It hurts. It's a constant reminder of ways that I feel like I'm broken, but with time and with a lot of dedication, you know, I got to the point where I was like, I mean, I I very clearly remember the first time that I made myself orgasm with little pain and I just sat there and fucking bawled my eyes out Mm. because I was like, this is such a big moment for me, like a moment that I never thought that I would have and I'm having it. And if I can make myself orgasm, then someone else can too. And that's really important for me, having some sort of sex life. I'm a very sexual person. I've always wanted that to be a part of my life. And because of the issues that I have, I always felt like I wasn't allowed to have that. And so giving myself permission to orgasm and please myself and know that perhaps someone else could do it as well was like, okay, maybe I can live like this. Like maybe this life is worth living in some way, you know? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I have goosebumps listening to you, Laura, talk about you giving yourself an orgasm. And that <laughs> sounds kind of creepy and gross, but like, it's true. Like I, the, the beauty of that self ownership and like you taking this thing, which was, has brought you so much pain and trauma and, and just struggle throughout your life and, and turning it into like, a thing of joy and self-care and love. Like, I think that is so amazing. Totally. I appreciate that. Thank you. I think it's very important to replace the bad memories with orgasm memories and reacquaint myself with that part of my body. Like my body is doing the best that it can. I think for a long time I felt like I was at war with my body. I fucking hated my body. I hated it for doing what it's done to me. But then I realized like my body's actually not doing this to me. We're in this together. We're fighting the disease together. My body's doing the best that it can. Yeah. And I needed to get on a good term with my body again. And I needed to masturbate and I needed to reacquaint myself and tell my vagina and tell those muscles, I've got you. I'm here. This is going to hurt a little bit, but eventually it's not going to hurt as much anymore. And like, we're doing it together now. I don't know if that sounds crazy, but that's the that way is, that I that's, about it. I love that. I think that sounds amazing. Oh, the siren's going by. Can you hear that? <laughs> I hear that. I hear that one. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I think it's right. gone now. Yeah. So the self-care and pain management you have like nowadays, like how do you, how do you address that nowadays? Self-care? Yeah. Self-care, pain management, kind of just the day-to-day of living with chronic illness, chronic pain. Yeah. So these days I very much take it moment by moment, day by day. I try not to think big picture and I very much think in terms of like letting myself off the hook. It's very hard when you, I think a lot of people with chronic illness kind of have this idea that they're lazy. Mm. I myself do that to myself all the time. If I need to stay home from work or like 
on a Saturday, if I just spend the day watching Fleabag like I did yesterday, I'm like, wow, I'm a lazy piece of shit sometimes. And I've had to reframe that. Um, I get angry a lot about not getting a choice in what I do with my Mm. life. Yeah. And so my therapist has helped me reframe it as like giving myself power back. And so a lot of my self-care now is reframing the thoughts. So if I stay home from work or like spend the day in bed, it used to be like, fuck this disease for taking my Saturday from me. I hate this. I wish I had a choice. And then my therapist and I talked about it and it was like, actually, my pain isn't doing this. I'm making the decision to stay in bed. Could I force myself out of bed? Yes. Do I want to do that? No, because in the long run, it's only going to make my pain worse. So I'm making this smart decision for my body because I know what's best for me to surrender to the pain today and say, okay, you know what? Sure. I'll watch Fleabag today. Tomorrow I'll try again. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been like very life-changing for me because I used to just fucking spiral and like, if I had to call in sick to work, I would email everyone like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like I'll, I'll come in early, like the rest of the week. And it's like, dude, I'm, I have a chronic fucking illness. And I always tell myself, I don't know if it's true or not, but it makes me feel better either way. I always tell myself if anyone else, anyone else has had what you had, they would not go to work today. They just fucking wouldn't. Absolutely. Why would they? Yeah. One more siren. <laughs> Oof, there it goes. Um, Yeah. So it helps to just let myself off the hook, be kinder to myself. I have to be on my own side. So that's like the mental aspect of it in terms of like other stuff. I just, I try and just do things that are nice for myself. Take nice hot baths, you know, go on nice walks, get massages when I can take myself out and buy myself a piece of clothing. If I want, like, I just, if I want to eat Taco Bell, I eat fucking Taco Bell. Like I just don't allow the thoughts and the negativity and like the judgment from the self-care people who are like, take care of your body and you wouldn't be sick like that type of thing. Like I just make my own decisions about what I do every day. And I'm okay with that. If that makes sense. It totally makes sense. You're, you're taking ownership because that's, that's the only person who can do it. Right. I'm the one living in this body. So yeah. like if I eat Taco Bell and I don't feel good later, I'm the one who's going to have to deal with it. Not you. So I yeah. don't really give a shit what you think about my Taco Bell order because yeah. I'm the one living in this fucking body yeah. and Taco Bell will make me feel better right now. So that's what I want. Love it. Yeah, that's great. And another um, aspect I've noticed about your sort of, I guess, part of your self-care, maybe you wouldn't describe it as self-care, uh, is CBD and weed. Oh, yeah, totally. That's like my medicine, actually, is the way that I describe it. Does that um, help with the pain a bit? So it does. I use some form of cannabis every single day. I am not on any other form of pain management. Like, I, I don't take any prescriptions or anything like that. Um, I'm not on birth control. Like, I'm just kind of... I've been down those routes and they just didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest symptoms that I have is nausea and trouble eating. I'm never hungry. Like I am constantly nauseous. And when I do eat, like I have the swelling that I've talked about and just constant uncomfortability. So I discovered weed one day because I was dating this guy and I was like in a lot of pain and he was like, just like smoke. And I was like, what? Like I'd never smoked weed before. And I smoked with him because I was like, whatever, what do I have to lose? I feel like shit. And I immediately felt this like sense of relaxation. Like my body felt like it 
relaxed for the first time in like seven years. Like it was insane. Like I was just like, wow. And I felt so hungry. I was like, wow, man, I want to eat. Like I want to fucking eat Chipotle. Like, and I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed eating, which is very rare for me because it, it constantly just makes me feel uncomfortable. So I use CBD and cannabis a lot to make sure that I eat and actually can enjoy food. Like when I went to Italy recently, like a year or so ago, I like took stuff with me so that I could eat the food there and not be miserable. I use it for that. And I use a lot of balms and rubs on my abdomen and my lower back, which also helps my pain. But on really bad pain days, like I always get stoned out of my gourd Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it doesn't make the pain go away. It just makes me more comfortable. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's good to hear. I mean, thank goodness. California is kind of ahead of ahead of the curve on that, um, where we can access that. I am so grateful every day. Yeah, because I don't, I don't, I doubt that Indiana is there. <laughs> it is not, and that's yeah. actually a problem. Like I'm going there for book leave for a month, and that is, I have a lot of anxiety about that actually, mm. because I'm like, I'm obviously taking CBD with me, but it's like very stressful to think okay, what if I have a really bad day when I'm there? Like, what am I going to do? Yeah. And you can't, I guess you probably can't fly with cannabis with with you, you know, on your person. Yeah, I mean, you're not supposed to. Yeah. Um, have I? Absolutely. Sure, it's my medicine. Sure. Yeah. I would actually rather be caught with it than not have it, if right. that makes sense. Like, yeah. that is how scared I am to not be able to access it. Like it, it is very much my medicine and it's something that I try and talk very publicly about because even if it doesn't work for someone else or someone else doesn't want to go the cannabis route, like I don't care. Everyone's decision is up to them and it might not work for other people the way that it works for me, but I think that everyone should have the option of at least trying it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not the case right now. Um, and what it has done for my life is so great that like, I just, you know, I can't, it makes me sad to think that there are people suffering in other states that maybe might suffer less if they had it. And I just don't understand that. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Um, well, I, I, I really appreciate you sharing, you know, about this stuff. I think, I think the listeners will get a lot out of it. And I, I, I've certainly gotten a lot out of it. Like I really, um, yeah, I just really appreciate it. Like I wanted to learn more about endometriosis and the things that you experience and just knowing that like people are in chronic pain, like that is like, um, an, a- you know, ac- an access, a door for me and my listeners to, you know, find greater compassion and ways we can, cause like the more I think we can learn about what people are experiencing, the better we can connect with them, the better we can relate to them or, or give them compassion. And so I just, I really appreciate you sharing. No, totally. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing as well and having me and just listening to me ramble for an hour. I loved it. Well, <laughs> um, let's start wrapping up. Uh, we, before we kind of plug your things and talk about where people can connect with you, we always end the show talking about empathy heroes. These are people in our lives who are just really great, uh, empathetic humans. And um, I will go first to give you a moment to think on it. And so my, my empathy hero this week is the author Tara Westover. 
she wrote a book called Educated, uh, a memoir, and it's a book I read last week. It's great. Uh, it's it's essentially about a woman who grew up in a uh, very conservative, very strict Mormon household in Idaho. Uh, her father was very kind of like Illuminati, fear, you know, very feared of the government, all that stuff, and, and never went to school. And then eventually she kind of like, you know, broke away and like got a PhD by 27, um, which is amazing to me. But uh, she, uh, this quote from the book, which I really love, uh, I'm going to read. She says, my life was narrated for me by others. Their voices were forceful, empathetic, absolute. It had never occurred to me that my voice might be as strong as theirs. Um, which I just love because it, it just, I think it speaks to like what we're talking about here today. It's really like about owning our narrative and owning our stories and not allowing others to dictate dictate that for us. So um, it's an amazing book. It's called Educated by Tara Westover. And uh, that's why she's my empathy hero this week. I like that. That's yeah. good. How about you? Okay. I was thinking about this. I think my empathy hero for the week would be my friend Farah Penn, who is actually an author of the book 12 Steps to Normal. Um, she's one of my good friends here. And although she does not have the same illnesses that I have or the same pain that I have, she has become such an empathetic and important person in my life. Um, she has keys to my apartment. And last Sunday, a week ago today, I had a very bad pain day and I was on my bathroom floor unable to get up. I called her. She came over right away, picked me up off my floor, got me into bed, got me the medicine that I needed and walked my dog. And people like that, like, I mean, I just like want to cry thinking about it. Like those are the kind of friends that everyone deserves to have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, she's my empathy hero. Awesome. Yes. Good job, Farah. Yes. Farah, you're the best. We've, we've got Tara and Farah this week. Oh, wow. Empathy heroes. <laughs> it rhymes. It rhymes. I love it. Well, uh, Laura, where can people learn more about you, connect with you, and kind of, you know, eventually pre-order your book, Vagina Problems? Yes. I think the best way to connect with me is on Instagram. It's at Laura E. Parker. My name is Laura, L-A-R-A, not Laura. Um, and, you know, my book comes out in 2020. It's called Vagina Problems. So be on the lookout and DM me on Instagram, I guess. Not creepy though. <laughs> except you're not, except if you're a creepy dude, do not do that. Yeah. Unless, yeah. If you're a creepy dude, just stay away. Yeah. <laughs> well, Laura, thank you so much for being on You Me Up I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It was great. I'm excited. And to you listeners, I'm here. You're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy.